and the Richard Pryor Show. Let me say that again. I sound like a dick. All you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 210 of the SLS cast. This would be the dear God, how many kinds of number is it episode of the SLS cast? Because it turns out. That if you need to find a composite number, an abundant number, a primordial number, a triangular number, a pentagonal number, an idoneal number, a pentalope number, a pronic number, a harshad number, an untouchable number, and also, you know, fuck it, also a 71 gonal number, yeah, just go to 210. 210 is every single kind of that kind of number. What the fuck? That's a lot for 210. And with that wonderful little bit of mathematical crazy-ass knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. So it is close-ish to Christmas time. As Mm. we are recording now, it's 10 days till Christmas. And I I, want to ask you how... Or, you know, oh, it's 12 or, days or till Christmas? 11. I mean, well, it's the 13th still. Right. For another hour and a half. Oh, and I guess I was just jumping the broom a little <laughs> bit, as they as they say. Jumping the old candy cane. But uh, you were telling us last week about the little North Pole communicator. Hmm, yes. So I, I'm guessing you've used it by now, right? Like, are, are your kids currently speaking to Santa Claus they have not had the opportunity to speak to Santa himself, but they have talked to, like, Maurice's fucking barber and Fiona the tailor and, uh, like... Wait, and, and he, like, he has a barber named Maurice? I am completely making up the names. Um, oh. Just go with it. But, uh, yeah, it's like all sorts of different elves and people who assist around the North Pole. So we've talked to someone who, like... Uh, mans the stables for the reindeer, and I think maybe Mrs. Claus once. Not hundred percent, I can't remember. Uh, but yeah, like so, like the barber and the person who makes all the clothes. Uh, they they talk to to various toy makers. They talk to somebody who does the 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 mapping of the world to make sure that Santa gets to all the right houses as fast as he can. And um, it's 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 clever. I gotta hand it to him. It is clever. But is it worth the money? Well, it was free, so I, you know. But if you paid for it, would it be worth the money? <laughs> um, <laughs> is this you, one it, big Hallmark cash grab? You know what? No, I gotta hand it to them. It is a pretty fucking sweet piece of equipment. Um, I think the the whole cartridge thing is kind of shitty uh, in terms of how they run that supply, but um, it is pretty cool. I gotta hand it to them, so... Uh, we'll see what we can do about procuring a proper cartridge uh, when it drops this year. But um, but if not, I'm just going to say Daddy broke the communicator. And, you know, I'll just look forward to a lump of coal or something. 
So last week we recorded on a Monday, and you had to take yes. your final, fi- final, final, finals the following mm-hmm. day, and yes. uh, we, you know, we kind of kept you busy to the wee hours of the morning uh, mm. with the show. How, how did you do on your finals? Did you pass, or am I going to receive a swift flogging from you? <laughs> no, I ended up with uh, A's in all my classes. So well, that's good. Yes. Now you can continue to shove it in my face about how, ooh, I'm so smart, my name is Matt, and I can <laughs> be a history major and make all A's. Well, uh, you know, I don't know how smart I am, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I think in terms of uh, status and um, the ability to live one's life in a way that befits living it awesomely, um, you're you're definitely winning. So I can be as smart as I want, but I shouldn't be a damn near forty year old guy still trying to bust his way through college. Um, you know. But we're not here to talk about depressing things. It's Christmas. <laughs> it is Christmas. Yeah. I'm sure outside your window you can see your Christmas lights, the light from your Christmas lights shining in, and maybe the tips of the light bulbs just kind of poking through the windowsill, just barely. <laughs> uh, well, actually, because I didn't want to forget them, I went ahead and turned them off when I came inside. Oh, but that, they do! They good. do like provide a very nice glow, a nice ambient glow. Um, so it's really cool because you can turn off all the lights, and then on the inside, it'll just be the Christmas tree lights and the little Santa lights and stuff we have. And then you still can see the ambient glow from the kitchen as well as the living room area from outside it's very nice very well you know i mean i don't know if in your neighborhood or not you have these little hooligans that if they notice you cheaping out on the the thrill of, of street illumination christmas street l- illumination whenever your lights are on they'll come over and find that one light that once removed all of your lights just go to shit completely that happened to my dad once he turned his lights off at five o'clock he noticed some children down the road just like leering at him wondering why the hell is this dude richard branson uh why is richard branson ruining the street illumination and so the next day they just came up and just took one light from one of the icicle lights over the garage and that just the entire sector of lights just went out completely (laughs) oh that's funny um, and we still use those lights. I, well, I mean, we used to still use those lights. If only a section of your lights completely go out, and there's still parts of it that still work, all you got to do is just double wrap them, you know? Just double wrap them around a tree. You know, nobody's really going to be able to tell at night that you have a shit ton more lights on there that than there actually should be. <laughs> Tricks of the trade. Yeah. I guess. Uh I, I just don't think that uh, Jen would let that go. She's way too anal about that stuff. Yeah. Are anyway. you enjoying your uh, your time off, your break from school? I, I guess I, I've had to work and deal with other things, and um, and now I'm looking. I'm, I'm gearing up for the final push of working for me for the year. I'm telling you, yeah, I'll be I'll be a lot better. I'm not gonna lie, I'll be a lot better after tonight. <laughs> I will be very much in a good place uh why Matt? is it because you're gonna have weeks off from not recording the show since we come out with a weekly episode every single week well i guess that's kind of redundant right 
a weekly episode every week. <laughs> it's Captain Redundancy Man. Um, it, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's Manly Redundancy Guy. Uh, no, um, yeah, I, I I I gotta say yes. I'm looking forward to our holiday break immensely. This has been just an overwhelming amount of movies uh, this year, and with school and everything else, I'm looking forward to actually not watching movies. I probably won't even watch the movies we're supposed to watch for when we come back until literally the day we record. (laughs) I'm I'm still working to break my 400 goal, 400 movie goal for the year. Good luck, sir. God bless you. I hope you win. I'm going to win the award for the saddest human being in all of Los Angeles. I told my significant other, like, I've already surpassed my goal last year of the number of movies that I watch. And she and, and I'm, I want to reach my ultimate limit to at least be at least more than one movie a day. Well, really? Well, how, you know, how many did you watch last year? 312? Well, what are you at now? 370. So that is sad, according to her, but... Well, you that you've already done it because there's only 365 days in a year, and even if you want to include a leap year, then it's 366, and you're already at 370. So, woo, you've done it. Good job. I'm still getting to 400. All right, I uh, guess let's look into the old mail sack if you want. Um, and if you would like to send us an email, you of course can do that by sending an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, if you would like to follow us on Twitter, you can do that as well by following us at the SLS cast. And once again, it's dusty and dried out and moths fly out and there's nothing there. Maybe next year. Anyway, going right to the good stuff. Shall we get to the news, sir? Let's do it. All right, here we go, folks. It's the news. <laughs> You know what? Just to change things up, because I literally have one piece of news. Tim. Tim, you're going first. Timmy going first? Tim goes first on our last official episode of live recording. Of live recording, because every episode is live when you are listening to it. <laughs> That's right. It's happening. It's, it's the magic of technology. It's happening right as you... All right, so the first couple uh, pieces of news I'm going to tackle here are from the HollywoodReporter.com, a couple passings. The first passing is E.R. Braithwaite. He passed away at the age of 104, and he was the author of To Sir With Love, and this article says this. E.R. Braithwaite, the Guyanese author, educator, and diplomat whose years teaching in the slums of London's East End inspired the international bestseller to Sir with Love in the popular Sidney Poitier movie of the same name, has died. He was 104. Schooled in Guyana, the U.S., and the U.K., Braithwaite wrote several fiction and non-fiction books, often focusing on racism and class and the contrast between first world and colonial cultures. He was regarded as an early and overlooked chronicler of Britain from a non-whites perspective, with his admirers including the authors Hanif Kirishi and Carol Phillips. 
Braithwaite also served in the 1960s as the newly independent Guyana's first representative at the United Nations and later was ambassador to Venezuela. Upon his 100th birthday, he received an honorary medal from his native country for lifetime achievement. Uh, and all quotes there. The article does go on for a bit more. If you are interested in reading more about him, do check out this HollywoodReporter.com article. Again, to Sir With Love author E.R. Braithwaite dies at 104. In the last passing here, via HollywoodReporter.com again, Alan Thicke, the dad on the sitcom Growing Pains, dies at 69. I, I understand Alan Thicke really isn't known for film, but he has been in so many TV shows and worked on so many TV shows. Not just acting, but he was a composer, a theme composer. And we all know his name, we all know his face, and I grew up watching, like, Growing Pains and all that jazz, so I just felt that I, I, I had to mention this. The article says this, Alan Thicke, who played the head of the Seaver family on the popular ABC sitcom Growing Pains, has died. His publicist confirmed to The Hollywood Reporter. He was 69. The actor reportedly had a heart attack while playing hockey with one of his sons. He was transported to a L.A. area hospital on Tuesday afternoon and pronounced dead. Thick recently appeared on the Netflix sequel Fuller House. Growing Pains aired on ABC for seven seasons from September 85 to April 92. Thick played Jason Seaver, a psychiatrist who works from home. Joanna Kearns portrayed his wife and Kirk Cameron, Tracy Gold, Jeremy Miller, and Ashley Johnson were their kids. In the last season, Leonardo DiCaprio appeared as a homeless teen who moves in with the family. The series reached as high as number five in the ratings. After hosting a successful daytime talk show in Canada, the Ontario native launched the syndicated Thick of the Night in September of 83 for an American audience. However, the show, produced by famed network programmer Fred Silverman, proved to be no match for The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson and lasted just nine months. Thick also was a songwriter who composed the theme songs to such sitcoms as Hello, Larry?, different strokes in the facts of life and he wrote for tv comedies including the paul lynn show fernwood tonight america tonight and the richard pryor show the article does go on from there quite a bit and do check it out if you want to read more again both articles from the hollywoodreporter.com this one alan thick the dad on the sitcom growing pains dies at 69. Matt, what do you think about this? Do you have any, uh, did you grow up or uh, when you were younger, did you watch Growing Pains at all or any of Alan Thicke's work, I guess? I, I did. I was a big Alan Thicke fan. Um, and <clears throat> I definitely used to tune in as it aired watching good old Growing Pains. And I also loved his uh, pop culture resurgence in How I Met Your Mother. It was fantastic to see him in that uh, more recently. And it is sad. It's definitely sad to know that a, a piece of a piece of your childhood is gone, you know. And and while you can always revisit um, a show or a movie or, um, you know, maybe a game or something like that, it still kind of tempers that nostalgia knowing that in real life that pipe dream of a reunion for any reason could never really happen so um yeah it's definitely it's definitely sad so 
And uh, yeah, and also that was the very first Sidney Poitier movie uh, I ever saw was To Sir With Love. My mom made me watch that. Um, <laughs> she that made you watch it? Introduction. It was the well, first I, I movie and she to... tied me down and had me watch no, it. No, no, I mean, it just, I really wasn't interested in seeing some kind of, you know, offhand British drama that was basically the 1960s equivalent of, um, uh, what the hell's the... White Chicks? No, the, the 1960s equivalent of whatever, the Michelle Pfeiffer movie, you know, Gangster's Paradise, Coolio, whatever. Can't think of it. Uh, well, we're gonna look it up now, so what do you think of that? The magic uh, of IMDb. Mm-hmm. Dangerous Minds. Ah. It is the, uh, 1960s equivalent. So I didn't, you know, really want to see it, um, but she's like, no, it's really good, please sit down and watch it and everything, and I was like, okay. And you know what? She was right. It was, a, it really was an outstanding movie, and, um, had, and so from there, I then had, you know, had to go back and, uh, watch guess who's coming to dinner um you know all that kind of stuff so and we actually watched a sir with love uh during the original sls cast goodness did we wow yeah but yeah so uh, both 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 sad both sad for sure uh let's see did you want to do any more news or shall i jump in with mine right quick go ahead all right, here we go. The one and only piece of news. Uh, from Variety.com by way of Dave McNary. Johnny Depp ranked most overpaid actor for a second straight year. Uh, you heard that right, folks. The annual Forbes list of the top most overpaid actors in Hollywood ranks Johnny Depp in the top spot for the second year in a row. To compile the list, Forbes analysts examined the last three significant movies released on at least 2,000 screens the actor was in prior to June, uh, then calculated the operating income of those films, then divided by uh, that by the star's estimated pay for those films to come up with a number for final return on investment. By that model, Depp returned about $2.80 for each dollar he was paid. Uh, Depp last starred in Disney's Alice Through the Looking Glass, which generated a disappointing $300 million worldwide on a $170 million budget. $170 million budget. Um, of course, that movie did open at the same time that a judge issued a restraining order against Depp after spouse Amber Heard alleged he had abused her. Uh, and the couple reached a $7 million divorce settlement in August. Uh, let's see. Depp starred last year in the comedy Mordecai and the crime drama Black Mass, which grossed a respective $47 million and $100 million worldwide. He will next appear in Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. Now, um, there's a little bit more here to this um, article, but I just wanted to <clears throat> give you an idea here. So Johnny Depp is number one at uh, $2.80. Um, Will Smith was number two, and Channing Tatum was number three. But can you imagine who number 10 is on this list? No, you can't? Okay, it's Bradley Cooper. Oh, wow. Okay, I was going to say Bruce Willis. Is Bruce Willis on that list? Bruce Willis is not on this list. He is not on the list. We've got, uh, uh, we're just going to run them, we're just going to run straight down the list here. Johnny Depp, Will Smith, Channing Tatum, Will Ferrell, George Clooney, Adam Sandler, Mark Wahlberg, Leonardo DiCaprio, Julia Roberts, and Bradley Cooper. So, yes, 
that's uh that's what's up but um i definitely uh would recommend you read this for yourself and check it out any anything you have to say about that it, honestly it really doesn't surprise me because um that he gets so little return on investment but at the same time that he gets so much money because he is so internationally renowned and everybody knows who he is and granted it's mainly at this point because of pirates of the caribbean but even still he is like this just massively known entity and so of course it stands to reason that when you've just got this 100 percent global reach that you can command a lot of money and even when your films don't do well um but i'm just curious how much longer it'll hold out um will this next pirates of the caribbean movie bounce bounce him back i don't know what do you think tim you know, I don't know. It doesn't surprise me that Johnny Depp is number one on the list. I like him as a... He seems like a cool dude, and I think he's a very good actor. It's just... I, I think he's just too comfortable playing these caricatures type of characters, and mm -hmm. people still want to see that sometimes. And I think... Like, I don't know if Disney is worried about that with Pirates of the Caribbean. That's why they waited so long. But they possibly could have even waited a little too long. I, don't, I think the last Pirates of the Caribbean movie didn't do as well in the U.S. compared to the other three Pirates of the Caribbean movies. But it's a big, still, it's still a big, massive hit in like Japan and China, like overseas and whatnot. So I, I don't know. Maybe he's still like bankable overseas, just not really here. Uh, but yeah, Will Smith. That doesn't surprise me. He really is struggling with picking a comeback movie. I mean, he was great in Suicide Squad, but that's still not a good movie. And apparently his upcoming Collateral Beauty is not supposed to be all that great either. So, <laughs> No, no, the hell you say. This movie that they're just, you know, totally Oscar baiting here and, you know, and, and trying to like, they're actually like combining it with like charities and stuff right now at this point. It's so sad. Are they so really? Sad. But you can get advanced tickets. Oh yeah, really? There, uh, I was at the Cinemark um, last week or the week before um, when I saw in the little in their commercial section of the previews or whatever that you know that you can text whatever to donate or buy this one little thing and it goes to this charity that you know that ties in somehow to Collateral Beauty. Oh God, it, I was like, really? Oh my God, really? That's so sad. Fun, fun <laughs> times. That's right. All right. That is my news, sir. Bring us home. What do you got? All right. So my last few pieces of news, or a couple pieces of news. First up, from Bloomberg Technology. Yes, that's right. Bloomberg Technology. Bloomberg.com. Apple is in talks with Hollywood for early access to movies on iTunes. This is written by Anusha Sakui and Alex Webb. And this came out on December 7th. It says this. Apple Inc. is pressing Hollywood studios for earlier access to movies, according to people with knowledge of the matter. A move that would bolster the company's iTunes business. 21st Century Fox Incorporated, Time Warner Incorporated, 
Warner Brothers and Comcast Corps, Universal Pictures, all confirmed over the past week that they are looking to offer high-priced home video rentals of new movies shortly after they open in theaters. Some studio executives have been pushing to allow home rentals as early as two weeks after theatrical debuts and are considering a deal with iTunes as one option, said the people who asked not to be identified because the discussions are private. The most recent talks are part of longer-running efforts by Cupertino. California-based Apple to get new movies sooner, two of the people said, Such an arrangement could help iTunes stand out in a crowded online market for movies, TV shows, and music. While the iTunes store helped... Apple build a dominant role in music retailing, the company hasn't carved out a similar role in music and video streaming. Christine Moynihan, a company spokeswoman, declined to comment. The studios could end up choosing another technology platform instead of Apple to deliver movies more quickly to households. Hollywood studios typically give theaters exclusive rights to new movies for 90 days or more before issuing them on DVD or making them available for online purchase. With cinema attendance mostly stagnant and home video revenue flat in recent years, film companies are under pressure to find new areas of growth. Shares of movie theater chains fell, AMC Entertainment Holdings dropped as much as 2.8%, while Regal Entertainment Group slid as much as 1.9%. Cinemark fell as much as 1.1%. Earlier availability of new movies could satisfy a growing consumer appetite and deter piracy, Warner Brothers chief Kevin Tujura said last week. One option is a premium-priced online rental for new movies at prices of 25 bucks to 50 bucks, a possibility under consideration at the studios, according to people with knowledge of the matter. Theater chains have battled to keep their exclusive hold over new movies, in some cases boycotting films that were released too soon for home viewing. But Cinemark Holdings Incorporated, the number three U.S. exhibitor, said recently it's looking for solutions that would benefit both sides and held preliminary talks about creating a so-called premium window for home entertainment. Such a service is likely within the next 18 months, one of the people said. The article does go on for quite a bit more, but end all quotes there for right now. Uh, again, Apple is in talks with Hollywood for early access to movies on iTunes via Bloomberg technology. Matt, what do you think about this? Do you think Apple should be the sole company to have this power, or should I choose whether or not I want to stream a newly released movie via Apple or Vudu or Amazon Prime or anything like that? Or do you, do you even think that there shouldn't be early streaming for new movies? Um, oh, I don't care if there's new streaming for movies or not. I do think that um, uh, I, I do question the wisdom of only allowing it to one company. Um, but at the same time, I think that it will fall to one company to land some exclusivity deal mainly because if it's going to be bad enough if one company gets it and everybody starts pirating it and ripping it off if you let a whole bunch of companies have access to it then um 
you know, it, it just compounds that side of the problem, which is what Hollywood's scared of to begin with, not to mention, as you pointed out, all the theater chains, which are, uh, have not been doing as fantastically as they would like. Um, why would they want to drive business even further away? Um, I, I think that something like this is going to have to happen, though, because the, the, the reason why people don't go to the movies uh, anymore um, is because it's literally at this point it's just blockbuster fatigue, and so you get movies like Loving, you get movies like um, uh, Nocturnal Animals or what have you, and other films that are or art house flicks, you know, like the upcoming La La Land, um, like uh, um, you know, you get these other movies that just don't do as well, and yet it's kind of like, well, why, then why don't you start with those movies? You know, you want to protect the, you want to protect the theaters, keep the blockbusters there. Start with the smaller movies, start with smaller budget movies that, um, will help promote it. There's ways to get around this problem. I, but it's a, it's a really big, complicated issue. And it's basically because, um, these dinosaurs have refused at every goddamn twist and turn to properly innovate and move with the times and are instead trying to figure out ways to bring people in who don't want to be there. It's just that simple. You're, you're, you're fighting a losing battle by trying to bring in people who don't want to be there. You have to give them a reason to come. And if blockbuster fatigue isn't already telling you something, um, then maybe you should look at, home viewing so anyway yeah and i really don't think home viewing will actually will will necessarily keep people from pirating movies either because of course not no and the thing is is that because if you're not going to want to pay if you're by yourself you're not going to want to pay 25 bucks or 50 bucks to watch rogue one either you'll pirate it or you'll go pay 15 bucks go see it in imax 3d right and that's the other thing is that if you price it right, the people who want to do it are going to do it. Um, and the other side of that is, is that despite how cool and how good home theater has become, uh, it is not an IMAX screen. It is not, uh, you know, the whole movie going experience with the popcorn and your friends and the big 3D and all that kind of stuff, if that's what you're into, or even just to be able to go and see the floor to screen, uh, floor to ceiling screen or what have you. And that's something that you can only do at the movie theater, um, for the most part. And there are people who are still going to pay for that. And also, if you give them a good enough product that people see in their homes and they go, holy crap, that's so good. I've got to see it on a big screen. You very well could introduce or reintroduce a segment of the population and entice them to come back. Um, uh, you know, so it's it, like I said, it's just very complicated. And finally, the last piece of news via Collider.com. It's a list, but I'm not going to go through all 29 of these titles. The 29 most rewatchable movies ever made, and this was put together by the Collider.com staff. 
but the opening paragraph here is, quote, pain is temporary, film is forever, end quote. That quote has been used ad nauseum to drive home the fact that cinema is ingrained in permanent ink, and that however difficult or arduous the process of making a particular film, the end result is hopefully worth it. The truth is not every movie is worth standing the test of time, and some age more gracefully than others. But film is forever, and that's one of the great things about the art form. Movies are always there, unchanged, unless George Lucas is involved, to revisit at any time you like. Granted, that's become more difficult in the post-blockbuster era, but everyone has their stable of movies they return to time and time again. So the Collider staff put their heads together to generate a list of the most rewatchable movies of all time. These are film that, for a variety of reasons, hold up on repeat viewings after repeat viewing. Maybe they perfectly evoke a universal theme, or maybe they're just immersely enjoyable some were even made to purposely reward repeat viewings with in-jokes and nods that are reflected in reveals later in the film. But all of these, we attest, are worth revisiting many times over. And I'm just going to skim through these. And Matt, you tell me if one of these you just don't understand. Like, you can't... You really don't understand the reasoning why this could be on the list. Uh, the first one here, I wholeheartedly agree. It is Martin Scorsese's... Goodfellas. Uh, I think we both can agree that that is a rewatchable, highly rewatchable movie. Absolutely. Next up, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, John Hughes's 1986 film starring Matthew Broderick. Certainly. Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. No. no okay. Okay. <sighs> Memento. Chris Ooh, Nolan's Memento. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, Simon Pegg, Edgar Wright, Nick Frost's Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, that's okay. Sure. Um, And we have something a little bit more contemporary, uh, or a little bit newer at least than uh, Goodfellas and I guess Shaun of the Dead. Uh, The Social Network. Well, I guess that just came out in 2010. (laughs) But (laughs) (laughs) Really? Okay. Well, their reasoning for the social network is that, quote, first reactions to news of the West Wing creator Aaron Sorkin writing a movie about Facebook were bursts of laughter, and then when David Fincher signed on to direct, that laughter turned to incredulity. There you go. Thank you. Uh, And that's all I'm going to read of that uh, paragraph there. But basically, they're saying that it was just a mix of Aaron Sorkin's writing and David Fincher's directing. It was like the perfect mold of the two. Um, I've only seen this movie once at the theater, and I just didn't really need to see it again, I thought. Yeah, I don't think it's... uh, Sorry, I do not believe it belongs on the list. Yeah. And we have a Miyazaki film on here, uh, Spirited Away. See, you know... Maybe it's not the only one on the list, so I guess... I would have to see the rest of the list, but... Um, I, okay, I guess. Yeah, well, they were saying that it was a gorgeous allegory on the beauty and peril of growing up. You'd be hard-pressed to find another Miyazaki so beguiling in its world-building. A film elegantly designed to work as well for children as it does for their adult counterparts. <laughs> uh, we have Shawshank Redemption on here. I think that's probably... 
would be on the top of most people's lists, especially if they are our age. Sure. One of your favorite films, Gross Point Blank. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, Jean-Luc Goddard's <clears throat> Band of Outsiders. We have Spielberg's Jurassic Park. Uh, we even have Will Ferrell's Elf on here. Tom Cruise's A Few Good Men, another Edgar Wright movie, Hot Fuzz, which I was in love with this movie when it came out. I think I watched this one 30 times in a row, no joke. But, you know, maybe not so much now. Uh, We have Back to the Future on here. We have The Matrix on here, the first Matrix. Groundhog Day. But one on here that's pretty interesting, and I'm just going to end with this so uh, people can actually go check out this Collider.com article is Magic Mike XXL. Uh, I know, Matt, you are a fan of the Magic Mike, well, the two Magic Mike movies. What can you tell us that is so pleasing about Magic Mike XXL that will make people want to rewatch it over and over again? Uh, what? No? What? No. 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 Apparently, the movie warrants the ease of watching it multiple times in a row. It's the best road trip movie of one of the best road trip movies of all time. There's nothing about it that's not fun. But literally, every part of Magic Mike XXL is a giddy treat. From the moment Channing Tatum starts ponying around his construction workshop in the film's opening scenes, XXL goes full tilt on just living large and having a good time. And, of course, this is written by a a writer by the name of Haley Fouch. So she might be a little biased when it it comes to this one. So, again, (laughs) these are uh, the 29 most rewatchable movies ever made via Collider.com. Written by the Collider staff. I only read a handful. uh, But do go to Collider and check out the rest. And let us know what you think if they are missing any from this list in particular. Just real quick, Matt, is there a movie that you can just watch it all the time? I know people would like love the movie Rudy, for example. They love watching that movie. Every time Rudy is on, they'll watch the commercials because they like that movie so much. Oh, that's funny. Um, honestly, I my 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 immediate go to would be like Shawshank Redemption. That is just a phenomenal movie all the way around. And then, I mean, if we want to keep talking, I'm sure I could keep coming up with other ones. But, um, you know, there are also movies like, for me, the, the Home Alone franchise. Shout out to Johnny White Trash. We actually uh, did a little tag team uh, Yuletide action on that. Um, I'm not sure when that will be forthcoming, but we actually covered the Home Alone movies. So those are rewatchable for me. But see, that's why I think, you know, like you mentioned Elf. I don't think Christmas movies should make this kind of a list. And the reason why is because um, whether or not they become perennial favorites is irrelevant. It's because um, everything is celebrated over and over again at at Christmas time. And so the same Christmas carols, the same meals, the same uh, decorations, you know, all, all this stuff. And... So naturally, you kind of get attached to the movies of the of the uh, period as well. So I I don't think that you should count those necessarily. I think they could be their own list, I guess. But um, Christmas movies, almost by default, when they're good, become rewatchable. So anyway, but yeah, 
That's where I'm at, sir. And that's my news. All right, well, we now go from the news and we go to our Yuletide copycat throwdown. It's, it's the, the copy, copy, cat, cat throwdown. throwdown. That's right, it's the copycat throwdown. Well, that's, that's right, right, it's, it's the, the copycat copy throwdown. throwdown. Stop it. Stop, stop it. it. No, no, seriously, stop it. Oh. Right, like, stop repeating? Stop repeating, right. Oh, uh, okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna kick your ass. Throw down time. Alright, so this time on the old copycat throwdown, we've got another threefer. We've got 1934's Babes in Toyland. Versus? 1961's Babes in Toyland. Versus? 1986's Babes in Toyland. Choose your side. Fight! Alright, so... They actually all have um, uh, different plots. It's just they kind of follow a similar story structure using similar characters. The bad guy is Barnaby. Uh, you've usually got an appearance by Mary Contrary, or Mary, you know, um, and uh, you've got some toy maker people who have the uh, uh, the toy soldiers who come into play and do things, whatever. And so they're highlighted with those kinds of aspects and of course um good with good conquering all just in time to save christmas etc cetera, etc cetera. um but the 1934 version actually stars uh laurel and hardy and this one interestingly actually takes place entirely in toyland and uh it has them doing using their shenanigans to save uh mother goose um, well, not not Mother Goose, but the the woman who lived in a shoe, uh, from having her shoe foreclosed on by the evil Barnaby, and of course all the shenanigans that go from there. Uh, then of course the 1961 version, and it is uh, it's a Disney movie, but it's um the Buena Vista arm where it was produced by Walt Disney and stuff. Um, but this is uh this one actually has the idea of the uh, Mary Contrary, and of course, that they are uh, working with like Mother Goose and everything. And again, Barnaby's the bad guy, and uh, you. Oh, but this time, you've got Tom Piper working with Mary Contrary. In Babes in Toyland, uh, you've got Bo Peep, who's uh, meeting up with Tom Tom, right? So that's your kind of, you know, that that's that pairing in that one and then of course in 1986 we have the drew barrymore version where this one takes place in real world and then she you know gets knocked out or whatever and then wakes up in toyland and has to fight through everything and of course now we've got mary contrary and jack be nimble uh that's the pairing there that barnaby's trying to stop so each one of these is different. Uh, they are musical in nature, um, uh, basically all three of them. And the 1986 film is just, it's just terrible. You watch it to laugh at it, not because you think it's good. So it's out of contention. Uh, <laughs> 1934 and 1961 versions, however, each have their own merits. The thing is, is that um, 1934, it's more, I mean, it is a Laurel and Hardy film, so it's designed to, you know, be more, 
uppity in its comedic sensibilities and everything. And so you're kind of left with a 1934 idea of violent humor that's funny. Um, hence humor. But the 61 version is a much better, it's a much slicker production, but for me it's a lot slower. At the end of the day, by a hair, due to the slicker production values, I gotta give the edge to 1961's Babes in Toyland. Um, and that is, again, the one that's produced by Walt Disney, uh, and stars Ray Boulder, Tommy Sands, Annette Funicello, and Ed Wynn. Although, I think at least it's a worthy contender, um, the 1934 version with Laurel and Hardy uh, is is also worth a watch and can be found online uh, for minimal to no cost. Um, and on Hulu. And on Hulu, even. So Hulu. Um, yeah, so it's not, but, but I will, I would also say, though, that while I'm a huge fan of classic cinema and everything, um, I, I, these films haven't aged very well. And I, and, and again, we've already eliminated 1986. So I'm talking about 34 and 61. Um, they, they really haven't aged all that well for me. They're still worth watching. I think they're still valuable, but you know, 61 edges it out. What do you got there, Tim? I am babed in, I am babed. I am babed in Toyland. I am babes and toyland out. I used to like the idea of babes and toyland. I used to like the premise. Not so much anymore after watching all three of these movies back to back. And why do I say that? It's because my first introduction to babes and toyland was back when I was in... I guess maybe I was in kindergarten, I was in elementary school, but I went to a daycare. And in that daycare, one eve of Christmas Eve, I guess, just a couple days before Christmas, our daycare overseer put in a VHS tape for us little kitties to watch. And that VHS tape was the 1986 version of Babes in Toyland. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I remember I have fond memories of watching it and just really getting into it and I was just swept away into this magical world of Toyland. A lot right there along with Keanu Reeves. I didn't know who the hell he was at the time so I couldn't really judge. Uh, and Drew Barrymore. Little Drew Barrymore. It must go to say how emotionally abused I was as a kid. To to completely let my imagination go and accept this movie for what it was. Because, oh my god, am I embarrassed to actually admit that I enjoyed this movie as a kid. I would like to think even kids, maybe, I mean, I'm sure maybe more so modern kids, you know, kids these days probably won't care for it too much. But it's just a bad movie. It might sound like I'm being a little too hard on my five-year-old self or whatever, but I grew up watching Spielberg movies. I know what Spielberg could do. I loved Spielberg movies. I watched Scorsese movies. I watched all these kind of more adulty... I've watched James Bond as a kid. So, like, I knew what a good movie was. I knew what good acting was, and I knew what good storytelling was. But by God, there was something about 1986's Babes in Toyland that just swept me away. And, uh, you know, like, they go to Toyland and everything. And just right off the bat, comparing this movie to all the others, you really can't. Because there's nothing really magical 
to 86 Babes in Toyland. You know, there's really nothing fun to it. It's really kind of creepy and eerie because the Toyland is infested by furries. I mean, it's literally people in furry costumes (laughs) that run this town. It's like a giant furry convention when they could just eat, sleep, poop, and do whatever from within their suit and never have to leave it. And they're in character all the time. It's bizarre because I think the Toyland land itself doesn't have that magical appeal like the other two movies had. You know, like, there was something storybook about it. There was something magical about it. Just some, It was very fantastical. This one, they just looked like they were in some German village. But the people that inhabited that German village dressed in animal furry costumes. The movie really wasn't that great before then, but it definitely doesn't get any better after that. It's just a creepy damn town. And the two songs that they sing in this movie are the same song, Cincinnati. That's what I think. I don't know. I I had to turn this movie off at like 10 or 15 minutes from the ending or before it was over because I just couldn't take it that much longer. I mean, they had all this really crappy over... So with the first two movies, you have people singing. The 1960-whatever Babes in Toyland has beautiful... has Actually has some great songs to it and great characters and characterizations and... You know, there's some fun, like, little cheeky moments to them, which make those two movies entertaining. With this movie, when these people sing, it's not their real voice. When little little young Drew Barrymore sings, it's like the voice of a 13-year-old or a 15-year-old young woman is coming out, you know, coming from her. It just doesn't ever match, and you have all this overdubbing that doesn't match. Even the toy maker played by... Uh, can't think of his name. Karate Kid, Grandmaster... His singing voice is completely overdone. Pat Morita. Yeah, Pat Morita. And I'll tell you what, it's not a friendly-looking Asian man voice that is doing the singing either. So just the movie all around is just fucking weird. Every aspect of it is just strange. And I really don't consider it creme de la crap either. I just think it's just a really bad movie. And I understand it's a made-for-TV movie, and I try to keep that in mind. But I... It's rough. I mean, maybe in 90, kids in 1986 would enjoy it or did enjoy it. I, I don't know. But there's a reason why you can't find it on DVD, at least in the U.S., maybe in Switzerland, because they probably just want to do drugs and find some more relevant things to enjoy with this movie. I don't know. But Babes in Toyland, 30s, 1934 movie, and the 1960-whatever movie. I do enjoy these. The 1934 movie is still creepy. It is a Hal Roach movie. It is a Laurel and Hardy movie. They play to the audience constantly. The audience is always in on the joke. And I guess when it just comes down to it, the jokes have just aged. They're not as funny anymore, but there's still like this lightheartedness to the movie that does make it appealing. But there's really no getting around the monkey and the... Mickey Mouse costume, trying to trying to be a mouse, but it's really a monkey in the costume, or the midgets in the three little pig, the horrifying three little pig costumes, you know, so you're dealing with the frightening children's costumes and monkey costumes of the 1930s, so I am going to go with the 1960 whatever's Babes in Toyland, 
I really liked Ray Bulger's portrayal of the bad guy. His portrayal was fun. He looked like he was having fun. It was more like snidely whiplashy, you know? He was just having a good time with the character, and it was it was all lighthearted fun. So I am going to go with 1960-whatever's Babes in Toyland as the winner of this week's Copycat Throwdown. Awesome, awesome. All right, well, we will uh, be back with our bonus segment when we uh, reconvene for our first official episode after the new year. Uh, So... That's going to take care of the bonus segments this time, and for the next week or so, maybe two weeks even. Who knows? Um, And bring us to the movies, does it not, sir? Yes, sir. All right, then here we go, For the last time, for, for 2016. I know this will be the last, the last uh, movies uh, episode, or movies, uh, movies segment. Um, and so I guess we better make it good. We, here we go, folks. We'll try. Yes, mm. Mm. yes, we... I'm just going to keep interrupting you. No shit. Hey, Here we go, folks. It's the movies. All right. So this week's movies are Loving 2016 and Nocturnal Animals. Where do you want to start, sir? Because you were so kind to let me begin the news, I, I will let you choose the movies. Okay, well then let us go ahead and start. We'll do them in alphabetical order. We'll start with Loving. The 2016 historical drama film written and directed by Jeff Nichols uh, stars Joel Edgerton and Ruth Nega as Richard and Mildred Loving, the plaintiffs of the 1967 U.S. Supreme Court decision Loving v. Virginia, uh, which of course change the rules uh, or the laws on interracial marriage. And, uh, you know, this is a, just, a, it's, a, it's a very, uh, as impactful as the decision was, I thought that it was very nice that they showed uh, a, just an excellent period piece um, that focused on the relationship that, that was there. And, um, when it and when I say it focuses on the relationship, it it focuses truly on the aspects of the relationship and what uh, their marriage meant in terms of how they were treated by society, both in Virginia and outside of Virginia. And the thing is, is that it wasn't all sunshine and gummy bears, right? Just because they were able to escape Virginia, where they were severely mistreated. Uh, doesn't mean that everything was going to be bundles of roses where it was at least legal for them to be together. Um, and so it shows those hardships as well. And it's very, very well acted. I think the writing is decent. Um, but the problem with this movie is that it is really kind of the problem with almost all movies in this vein. Um, you sacrifice you go in sacrificing the stirring drama of the narrative by already knowing the outcome. And so at that point, it becomes immensely important to have amazing writing for strong, strong characters acted very, very well. 
Um, and you've got, you have solid writing with decent characters acted very, very well. Um, so consequently, it comes through feeling rather by the numbers, which isn't bad, but I think it keeps the movie from being amazing. It's something that could have been amazing and yet is left being just very, very good. Um, so at the end of the day, because there's not a whole lot more to say about this one, uh, it's 3.75 out of 5. A very solid effort. Um, I would be immensely surprised if we don't at least get some acting nominations out of this film. And uh, they would be well-deserved, in my opinion. 3.75 out of 5. What do you got there, Tim? This is a very good movie. It's directed by the same chap. I don't have his name right in front of me. But he directed another wonderful character movie called Jeff Nichols. Yeah, Jeff Nichols, a wonderful character movie called The Impossible that I'm pretty sure we covered a few years ago. I know Naomi Watts was nominated for for an Oscar for her role in the movie. That was the one about the the big tsunami in shit where was it? Philippines, wasn't it? Philippines. Yeah, thank you. The big tsunami in the in the Philippines and it was a disaster movie, but the movie focused on the emotional struggle and uh, the character of the wife, of the mother, trying to find or trying to reconnect with her husband and her kids. And so this movie, I think up until the credits, up until the last like quotes that they do from the real people, you know, what they usually show before the credits start rolling. I My main comment was that I thought the ending judgment like whenever it builds up to what the Supreme Court was going to rule, I felt that those moments, those final moments just really didn't do justice to the overall cause or what the lovings these two characters achieved. And by that, I mean, the movie just felt like it just kind of just sort of ends. It, it feels very much the same way that it began or, or how it felt like in the middle when there was a little bit of hope, I suppose. It, it just really didn't go really much past that. And it was, though, not until the quote from the wife when she comments on her husband and saying that she's... I'm, I'm not going to tell you the exact quote because I don't want it to ruin the moment or anything. But the quote uh, was from the wife and she said something very nice about her husband. But it was something that you just really never hear from people these days. Like what like how they honestly feel and what they think of their of their significant other. Not that, oh, you know, I, I, I love them. I you know, they've they've always been you know, they're they're just the love of my life. I always thought they were beautiful, yada yada. But what she saw in the husband was that he was a very nice man that wanted nothing more but to look after her or to make sure she was safe. And that to me just really hit home. And to me that really tied the whole movie together. Because what you have now is a wonderful, nuanced period piece that follows the relationship between these two people, this couple, the Lovings, and exactly what drove them to reach the Supreme Court. And this movie isn't about the decision. I mean, we all know how it's going to end. I'm pre- if you've seen the trailer, you definitely know how it's going to end. 
And that's not the point of the movie. It's about this relationship. And there's something about watching this relationship that's refreshing that you never really see in these movies. Like, these actually feel like real characters. I honestly think Joel Edgerton's character is an older man that I've met some years ago as a kid. Just a very nice guy, but just to himself, reserved, camera shy, and just wants to do the right thing. And he wants to do the right things for the people that he cares most for. And there's just something really nice about that. You don't really see that at all in characters these days. But in saying that, that even does wear a little bit thin. It's a very, it's a character-heavy film. And, and that's really all I've got to say. I, I still think it's a very good movie and that people should go and check it out. Uh, despite its... Little Falls. It is a wonderful nuanced period piece, though. I give this 4.25 out of 5. Okay, well then that is going to leave us with nocturnal animals uh 2016 american neo-noir psychological thriller film uh this one was written co-produced and directed by tom ford is based on the 1993 novel tony and susan by austin wright and this movie stars amy adams jake gyllenhaal michael shannon uh along with uh well that's really about it you've got laura linney in there a little bit uh army hammer uh is in there briefly as well um oh and michael shannon was also in loving by the way i forgot to say forgot to mention that um so what we have here is three very distinct stories that none of which could be stretched into a movie on their own. Um, and yes, I know this was based on a book, but, but just bear with me here for a second. Um, that would not make a complete story, I guess on their own. And so are then combined together to create a, to create one whole narrative. Now, what could work in a book in book form and clearly did because it was successful and optioned and here we have a movie doesn't always mean that it will translate to the screen and the problem is for me that they are three different stories that didn't need to be told in this way um in the way that it's told you're really just kind of left wondering why we needed the framing at all. Um, you've got uh, Amy Adams plays this woman named Susan. Her estranged ex-husband writes a book and sends it to her as a manuscript and says, hey, this is about to be published. Um, you know, give it a read. If you like it, you know, whatever. Maybe we can meet up. I'll be in. Uh, I'll be in town. Uh, the book is called Nocturnal Animals, which is she which was his nickname for her, and it's dedicated to her. And then um, simultaneously, um, you know, her marriage isn't doing so super hot at the moment anyway. Um, so that's you know, and and uh, the and the and the book is a thriller, you know. So, um. All of the stories that are told, because there are three different narratives going on here at the same time, 
Uh, I haven't given you the third narrative because if I give you the third narrative, it kind of spoils the movie and I'm not going to spoil the movie for you. I think it's worth seeing. Um, but, and each one of these stories is, like I said, is interesting. And all of the stories are acted amazingly. They are acted so very well. So, so very well. But much like Arrival, the way that this movie is put together to form the narrative that it tells, it's not it's not confusing. It's just unnecessary. And, and it leads to a lot of it leads to a lot of stylization. Um, it, it, the movie is shot very, very well in, in terms of the cinematography, in terms of the contrast, um, the the theming behind things like weather that's used, sun, cloudiness, you know, uh, color schemes, art, uh, you know, all of these things are there and they're present. It's just, um, it, it just doesn't work as well as it should when you put it all together and. That's really what it boils down to. So I give this movie three stars. It's it's a likable enough movie, mainly because the characters are really compelling and they're acted very, very well. But the stories themselves, would none of these stories on their own would carry a movie. And so trying to put them together to make one artsy narrative only really services to point out the fact that You've got these great characters acted very well in a story that doesn't matter. Um, and that's that's where I land. Three stars. Check it out. Tell me if I'm wrong. What do you got there, Tim? <laughs> uh, this is a 3.75 out of 5 movie for me. I, I don't know. This could grow on me to where I, I'm definitely going to watch it again. Because I like that movies like this exist I mean, you could call it an experimental film, but it's a, an experimental film that a mass audience can digest with ease. I say that because it's not trying to be super weird. It's not trying to be too different. It's just kind of playing around with the narrative and the storytelling element. And it's trying to have all these stories connect to one big, not necessarily revelation, at the end, but to making the ending make sense, I guess, or or it's supposed to help the ending make sense, uh, if that even makes sense. I don't know. And that's pretty much all I've really got to say. It's an experimental type, visually exciting film that gets most things right. I look at this movie like me receiving a homemade pie from somebody else that you just have to eat up right away and not really think about it too much until the last kind of act happens and you've got to make some sense out of it. And really, it does, but it's one of those movies where you can speculate and come up with various speculations, but you just really don't know which one is right and whether or not the characters that you didn't think were petty are being petty or turned out to be petty or if something more dramatic and or melodramatic ended up happening so i mean either way it's a very it felt a little bit too contrived and out of character for at least one of these characters 
but it's visually exciting, like what Matt was saying, and I thoroughly enjoyed all of Jake Gyllenhaal's stuff. That whole revenge thriller portion of the film is, I thought, what made this movie for me. I definitely like the weirdness, especially the opening credits. It's not, I mean, I don't want to say it's the most jarring, but you'll never... You will never guess that this movie would open up this particular way. And uh, it's just very interesting. Uh, I will say this. I will say this. I was glad I hadn't started eating my popcorn first. (laughs) I'm just glad I didn't watch this one with the significant other's dad. Because (laughs) it's it's literally, it goes on for about five minutes. Or at least it felt like ten minutes. And you just gotta, you just gotta go with it. Just gotta go with it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. But uh, Nocturnal Animals... Oh, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say 3.75 out of 5. I I enjoyed it. Uh, I could, I guess I could say that I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I do want to see it again. Uh, what did you... Th- I, I thought Michael Shannon's character in this particular movie was just fucking awesome. I thought he was good. I mean, I thought it was a little bit too much of a character he was playing. And sometimes I thought he kind of upstaged Jake Gyllenhaal a little bit. Interesting. Interesting. But I, I did enjoy cool. it, though. He did good. Outstanding. Outstanding. All right. Well, uh, next week, we're actually going to be... Uh, we have That brings us to the end of the movies. We have no movies to talk about next week, uh, per se, because instead of going to the movies to talk about a couple of movies, we're going to be talking about all the movies. Yes, we're going to be talking about uh, the best and the worst of 2016 for Matt and Tim, and also probably bring in a couple of honorable mentions of things that maybe didn't make the show. Um, and kind of recap the year for you, and uh, that's what we're going to do. So I think without further ado, we get straight to the spiel, right? Spiel on! Alright, well the music you've been listening to as always has been brought to us by our music partners Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com both slash Cries of Solace. As for us we are of course the SLScast. You can find us at SLScast.com You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me this is Matt on Twitter at Nitwit12345 You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget you can always subscribe to us on iTunes favorite us on Stitcher Radio, and of course, get a hold of us on the old SoundCloud. So until next week, this is Matt saying the thanks to Amy Adams. I get to say this. I'd love to be a diva, but I'd then have to send so many apology notes for my abhorrent behavior. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. 
Thanks again for listening.